0: How in God's name do you convince people to give you money for this? This is like the opposite of everything.
1: Also, everyone, don't try to hire Brett. He's busy for the next thirty, <laughs> 30 or <years>. fifty years.
0: <laughs> good. This is good. This is a very good use of time. Um, His LinkedIn just ends. <laughs> it just falls off a cliff. It just. There's no LinkedIn in Dynamic Land. No, 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 please. No, no. <laughs> Someone in the studio who is one of the thinkers I respect the most in our industry, and I, I just don't say that lightly. No, I know. Uh, has thought very hard about how to make what we do moving abstractions and symbols around not just easier, but more empowering. Yeah. And it's also thought about the, the cultural impact. Mm-hmm. Um, of our industry technology in the larger world and where we could, ha- where we could do things better. And so uh, I'm talking about Brett Victor. Welcome, Brett. Thank you for being here. Hey. Brett, where do we start? Where did you start? Um,
2: I grew up in the East Bay of California, and I've um, lived there kind of on and off my entire life. I've basically spent my life bouncing back and forth between Northern and Southern California and enjoying and hating it, respectively.
0: And did you? Um, I mean, we're talking. Did you study computer science? Were you? No,
2: trying? no, no. I had. Um, these are some of the things I don't like to necessarily admit. I studied electrical engineering, and I had the greatest disdain for computer science.
0: Oh yeah, you because know, um, EE is more serious. I mean, it's got physics in it.
2: The attraction of EE was that you could bring magic into the world. And you could make things that you could hold in your hand, and you could give to somebody else, and they could push the button; and the light turns on. And I, I'd been programming forever; I'd been programming since I was, um, you know, seven or eight or something like that. But the magic was always trapped inside a screen. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to show something, so sh- show somebody the thing you had made, they had to like come over to your house and go up the stairs, and you <laughs> sit down in front of a screen together. And um, when I discovered electronics, then it was like you don't need the screen; it, the, the magic can be like wherever you want it to be.
0: This is not. I mean, I, I've known a lot of EEs in my life. Magic doesn't always come into the conversation. <laughs> well, right, and that was. Um, Where'd you go to school?
2: I, I went to school at Caltech. Okay, okay. As as an undergrad, and I um, again not a place known for magic. Yeah, the, the culture of Caltech is very much prank oriented. It's uh, very much um, okay. making crazy little projects and impressing people with your crazy little projects. And
0: and that was community then. So building and making weird things was, was just culture. Oh yeah. Culture. Okay. yeah that,
2: that, was, um, that was kind of what you did with people. That was how you had a good time on a Friday night. But <laughs> And so that, that was basically what I did as an undergrad was I just like built gadgets. And then I went to grad school and... Suddenly, EE was not about building gadgets. It was about how do you push Moore's Law? How do you take a chip that goes at 1 gigahertz and make it go 1.1 gigahertz? Mm-hmm. And that didn't appeal to me at
0: all. I know you were, I you were at Apple for a while. Was that the first thing that happened to you, or was that down the road?
2: No. After um, grad school, I worked at a company called elisis which makes um, pro audio equipment. Mm-hmm. elisis was an interesting company in that they had just gone through a bankruptcy, and they'd mm-hmm. gone from 100 people to 8 Whoa! And so I came in and it was basically like the engineers were just kind of running the show and could do whatever they wanted. And so we had like all the structure and process in place to support us. But at the same time, I was like, I want to build this product. And they're like, OK, go for it. You're, um, you write up the spec. You do the hardware design. You do the software design. You do the product design. You draw the box artwork. You write the manual. Um,
0: that is awesome. It's on you. So for a young, confident engineer, this is heaven. And it's synthesis. I mean, it's music. It's immediate reaction. It's the the
1: bureaucracy got obliterated. The whole, all the machinery got like that usually slows you down, was gone. The parents weren't home.
0: Right. It's worth noting too that the early history of Silicon Valley was just as much around audio early days, like Ampex and and sort of recording technology in the 40s and 50s. And so there's a you're part you were part of the rich tradition that was probably then just transitioning and imploding. Yeah. What did you make?
2: So three products. The first one was the Alesis Ion, mm-hmm. which was a um, what's called an analog modeling synth. So it's a digital version of the analog synthesizers people used to make where they would have like oscillators and filters as little boxes. And they'd put you know, patch, patch, cor- like yeah, patch cords. And, yeah. Yeah. So in this product, the, the patch cords are all virtual and you have like a menu where you hook up things to that. Fun. But after that product, I was kind of at a crossroads and there was kind of a new, very big keyboard product starting up. And I had some pretty unconventional ideas about where that should go. I kind of saw it stuck in I mean, a 20-year-old tradition of really horrible user interface. And I was like, we could reinvent music. We could make this amazing new um, keyword. And that led to a number of um, internal debates and conflicts with like the, the, people, the person that I was actually officially assigned to be designing this thing and the, what was left of management. And... Um, they decided that they didn't want to take the risk, that they want to make something that was kind of a known bad instead of something that was risky but could be really good. And so I said, well – and so I'd been slated to to work on that product. I said, I don't want to work on that. And they're like, they didn't really know what to do with me. And so I proposed another product called the Alesis Micron, which was basically um, – I took – everything that people had liked about the ION and just compacted it, made it very small and added a whole bunch of stuff that was less about sound and more about making music with those sounds. So um, arpeggiators and rhythm sequencers and a bunch of stuff. So you could actually kind of produce an entire song on this tiny little box that you could have on your lap or carry around with you.
0: It's got to be pretty exciting for a young engineer to actually have your stuff out in the market in boxes that people buy and talk about.
2: Yeah, I would bring dates to Guitar Center, and I would like point to like, ah. "Hey, you know, I, I made I, <laughs> I, I, I would press the like the secret combination of buttons that would like sh- scroll the credits across the screen, and mm-hmm. like, you know, and like for, for the Micron, I had done most of the work myself, and so the credits I put in were like, you know, product design, Brett Perfect. Victor, sound design, Brett Victor, <laughs> okay. electrical engineering, Brad Victor. How all.
0: are what are the dates doing? Yeah. What are the, how are they reacting? Um, polite interest. Yeah, this sounds like it. <laughs> this sounds like you had a really good idea that when tested, you know. No, no, it, was, it, huh. it, it all worked out. Well, yeah, so. yeah, it's fine. But it's, you, I mean, yeah, you, you've got a thing in guitar, so you got to show that off. <laughs> okay, so what happens after Elisus?
2: Because one of those dates had gone well, and I was now dating somebody who was now living in Northern California, and so I left to um, be closer to her. Mm-hmm. So the product at Elisus, which was can you say red-lit? Is that the opposite of green light? Green-lit? The the part that that was um, rejected was, um, I still had that on my mind. I still was like, I want to make this amazing new musical instrument. And so I kind of pretended I was starting a company, Mm -hmm. but I don't really know what the the distinction is between actually starting a company and pretending. There is none. Yeah. No, that's true. You Um, just
0: keep pretending. Yeah.
2: (laughs) A friend um, of mine and I started kind of designing this new instrument I guess what happened was I got distracted by some things. Well, at least I was Lisa, got really interested in user interface design. That story was basically that I was working on this. Key- I was designing this keyboard, and um, a friend of mine came over and said, "Hey, it looks like you're making a user interface. You should read this book about user interface design." And I didn't know what that meant because at Caltech, there was, you know, design means circuit design. I had never heard the word design before um, in that sense, and so. I read this book, which was um, Alan Cooper's The Inmates Are Running the Asylum, which sure. is not a good book. It's a screed, but it was kind of exactly what I needed at the moment to realize this is what I've always wanted and um, didn't know there was a name for it. And this was this kind of answered a lot of the questions about why I um, was so miserable in grad school. It's like, oh, I've, I want to make things for people. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that as an engineer, you could do that. So,
0: so it was a good enough book.
2: Oh, yeah. So that's... I kind of fell in love with this new thing I discovered called interface design, and kind of read everything I could about that. Um, got really deep into that. I was going through like all of the HCI course syllabuses I could find online, and you know, <laughs> reading, you know, just expecting that that to be my thing. And so, shortly after Lisa's, I discovered Tufti and kind of got really dig in, really um, big into information design, which kind of dovetailed with the whole interface design. And so, sure. like,
0: so, oh, so for people who don't know, Edward Tufti is the author of. Uh, I think three or four now books on information design, which are, are just sort of seminal in the field. They're beautiful books, just as physical artifacts. And very really. just very opinionated about how to cleanly represent lots of data for humans.
2: And there isn't really a thing comparable to them. Um, no. There's like there's William Cleveland's books and a few other things, but actual kind of visual design for analytic information and data, like yeah. is is a very um sparse field.
0: So you start to to find the key texts and go, wait a minute, this is what I need to be doing. Yes. That was also
2: challenging because you know, I had I'd found this um this field and I was I was thinking, well, maybe this is what this is what I am, you know, this is what I'm supposed to be. So I tried reading like like design blogs and like design magazines <laughs> and that kind of thing. And I was like, these people are concerned with an entirely different set of things than, you know, they they want to know like what color is the new other color, and that sure. that. So so
0: what what well, is it that lot, I'm interested in? There's a lot in. of print legacy there too, like you know ty- things around type and things around web typography. Right. That if you're more purely focused on interaction design, are less of your priority. Yeah, I mean, I love typography
2: and I love calligraphy and I love visual designs, but the. The sorts of things that I saw, kind of the the capital D designers concerned with, left me really cold.
0: Not for you. Yeah. All right. So, what do you do?
2: One thing that happened was my friend, who I was working with on this fantasy company, was really into trains, and so as kind of a joke for him, I made this train trip planner for the subway in the Bay Area called BART. Mm-hmm. And um, because I was really into UI, it was, I kind of made this this UI playground where I could try out different um, different techniques, and that got some attention, but also. I was, I was interested in analyzing it and kind of writing a little paper on like what the UI techniques that I would designed for it, why they worked. Mm -hmm. And so that grew into, um, where where are we year
0: wise here? Actually, what's the, oh man, probably, um,
2: 2005. Okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. So we're, the internet is well along, not quite at a peak, but, but things are happening. Post crash, quote unquote.
2: And so, um. I pulled off this much smaller project, which was this train trip planner, and then I ended up pulling off basically a small book, which had, as a kernel, here's how this train trip planner was designed, but ended up as kind of this giant manifesto of a different design philosophy, and that was called Magic Ink. And so the two of those things got some amount of attention. I won an Apple Design Award for the train trip planner. That got me in contact with people at Apple. The the company had kind of like faded into the background. Um, I was starting to get lonely and antsy. And so I started looking for maybe I should be working somewhere again. And this thing had brought me in contact with Apple. I started talking with people at Apple and ended uh-huh. up um, taking a job there.
1: So this is like 06, 07-ish? 07, yeah. yeah. When does the like veil of secrecy get lifted? Can we ask you what you did at Apple? Has the statute of limitations expired? I don't know. I don't
2: really know what the... It, I think a lot of the... The secrecy is kind of self imposed. I don't know I it's like disturbing. if if you've if you've left, I don't know if they actually kind of come out you know, come after you with the huh. the you know special leave. agents that drop down from the ceiling. All, All right, cool.
1: So what did you do there?
2: Worked on secret things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, there, there is a very strong culture of secrecy. And um, like, especially I, that may have lifted a little bit, but this was still kind of the Steve Jobs era. Mm-hmm. So, like my first office there, you had to like badge through three separate kind of locked doors to kind of go progressively into the inner of the yeah. inner sanctums. And then my office, I had to keep the blinds down on the windows of my office because the people in my hallway did not know what I was working on. Wow.
0: And um, depressing. It doesn't sound fun. Yeah. So the story that I guess I,
2: I tell about the early days at Apple, which is you know, probably at least eighty percent accurate, is I came in the first day, went to my desk, and there was an iPad sitting on my desk. This was two thousand and seven. The iPhone had just been released. Um, the iPhone, the, the iPad, kind of was not a thing at all.
0: You're like, why did they give me this crappy giant iPhone? This is terrible. And I said, what is this? And
2: um, my manager said, well, we don't know. Steve wants a tablet. But what it would be for, <laughs> what people would do with it, um, what, kind of what form it would take, what the interface would be like, how people would use it. None of that had been kind of like the, the actual, the real design team at Apple had been, you know, basically busting their asses for years to make a phone. Mm-hmm. And so they hadn't had any chance to look at this tablet thing.
1: Steve wants a tablet.
2: Steve wants a tablet. And so you're like, doing SCI, so was,
1: Steve computer interaction. Well, that's, that's what the
2: entire company is. Like, <laughs> like, it's a focus group of one. And so I was like, okay, I guess I will try to answer these questions. And so I basically just went into this mode where every single week I made a new app or a new prototype app for this new device, kind of exploring, like, you could use it for this, you could use it for that. You could, like, take it to the grocery store with you and it would, like, help plan your meals and, like, all, you know, all these different types of people could use it.
1: So the ask was essentially play.
2: I don't think I even gave them a the chance to ask anything. I think they were kind of expecting me to take some time to get oriented and instead, they just put me in front of this thing. And I just started making stuff. And they are like, well, oh, we'll just it. let him do whatever he has to be it. doing. Cause yeah. is- that's cool.
0: All right. I guess that's the job. So how long did you do that? On the iPad,
2: that that lasted several months. It started transitioning into a different product, which is one that I can't talk about because it was not released. Okay. And the iPad itself started kind of getting trans- get thrown over the wall to the, the real designers who would actually create the shipping interface as opposed to what I was doing, which was basically just kind of inspiring people with here's possibilities. And so then over the next few years, the team had just been started and this larger team kind of grew up around me as I was making these things. And our, our job was to kind of flesh out these fantasy products.
0: Did and you ever have to present to jobs? Johnny was kind of at the top of my food chain. Johnny
2: Ive, okay. And so um, presented to Johnny Ive quite a bit. Okay. And then um, other people, like higher up managers um, would show things to, to Steve because Steve kind of had a pretty small circle of people that he wanted to associate with.
0: So one day you leave Apple.
2: Yeah. So I was getting increasingly dissatisfied with both the secrecy and with the secrecy was like my my style has always been come up with things and then put it on the Internet so everybody can learn from that. Mm -hmm. And I was in a context where only a dozen people could learn from what I was doing because everything was super top secret. Also there were a few things I started getting really interested in, and I was starting to see that my values and Apple's values were um, a bit at odds. That mm-hmm. Apple ultimately wants to enable people to listen to their music, and read their email, and watch videos, and like kind of have a entertaining digital experience. And I wanted to enable people to understand things more be- deeply, or you know, create amazing things that they couldn't create before. and the last year I was there, I was there for like three and a half years. And the last year I was like, okay, I'm going to go all in on two ideas that I had. One was kind of creative tool and one was an informational tool and spent um, you know, the entire time just like prototyping, prototyping, and iterating and had this kind of like a um, whole bunch of users within Apple, like hundreds of kind of internal users of these tools that I was making. And ultimately they were not accepted by the, the managers that would have had to, well, w- one of them was not accepted. The other one ended up shipping, but in a form that is so bastardized that I don't admit that it has anything to do with me. Fair enough.
1: Think it was quality, but just not associated with you or did you just not like what turned out? It was something that um,
2: required a lot of, a lot of breadth to be useful. It required um, the integration of dozens and dozens of different services and it. it was kind of the, the breadth of that that made it useful. And it got to the point where it's like, okay, um, we like this fe- feature, we're going to ship it. But then we went um, we went to marketing and marketing said, okay, people are not getting fused by, by this set of things, so strip them out. And then UI said, okay, these are confusing, strip those out. And then legal said, oh, we can't do the deals for these things and strip them out. And we ended up with just like a tiny set of...
0: Watered down. Yeah. That last... Paragraph explains an enormous amount about the entire world. Though. Exactly. So this is the era, I'm assuming, I knew you primarily as an essayist, a hmm. interactive, dynamic document essayist. When I say essay, it's code and ideas and design, and it's all put together. And it, it it whenever Brett releases an essay, it tends to sort of pause the internet. I use the word fun. Yeah, they are. So were you just sort of kind of on your own at that time, writing and thinking, or did you go get another job or what were you doing?
2: So there's a couple of things going on. One was that there was a interactive book that I was working on with Mike Mattis and human centrist and some other kind of former friends from Apple, which was um, called Our Choice by by Al Gore. Al Gore had written a book about climate change and he wanted to make it into an ebook. And so I was, I was involved in doing the kind of interactive graphics for for that book.
0: That's right. He was like on the Apple board too, right? Like he was kind of in the world.
2: Yeah. And then um, I put all my stuff in a storage container and got on a train and spent the next six months taking the train around the U.S. Whoa. um, Just living in random places, meeting, uh, going to like different research labs and different universities and meeting people, um, writing interactive essays from like public libraries
0: in different places. Mm -hmm. So you were on the road seeing the world, decompressing... Thinking new thoughts.
2: That was the plan, yeah. I had, um, I guess, built up a a set of things I wanted to think about that could not be thought at Apple. It was kind of this, um, I, had a, I had a bulletin board in, in my room and had like all these little um, pieces of paper that I had stuck to that board. And so when I went on my trip, I kind of scooped all those papers into like three little plastic baggies and then at some random public library somewhere in the middle of the the country i spread out those paper on a big desk and tried to figure out what what is it like what what is the abstraction here what what does all these little ideas add what are the categories here what does it add up to and kind of ended up sorting them into three piles which i ended up labeling dynamic pictures explorable explanations and kill math mm-hmm. and those um ended up being the the kind of three tiers on my website of like different projects that i was going to that I was would be doing and and did.
0: And now I'm drawing a line, too, because you wrote a similar essay about how the technology industry can help the world make progress around global warming, how it can and can't. And I'm seeing the connection back to the Al Gore work. So there's there's a real theme over the, it seems like a period of about three, four years there.
2: It even preceded that, like even before Apple, I saw climate change as this crisis and one of the most important things to work on. And I, I tried to work directly on, on that in certain ways and realized that I just didn't really have the kind of temperament for going really deep on a scientific problem. I, mm-hmm. I was more of a tool maker. I wanted to make tools that enabled other people to go really deep on the problem. Mm-hmm. Even before Apple, I had come up with this plan of, well, I want to make the this really powerful scientific tool. I don't really know enough about how scientific science is practiced. And so I'm going to like travel around the country spending a month at a different science, a different lab um, every month, just kind of offering myself as like, I'm a free tool maker, use me how you will, and then thereby kind of get, get the experience of, um, after a year, of like, oh, here's the sorts of needs that scientists have, and here's the, the super tool that I can make. That plan didn't really get off the ground because um, it turns out I'm not really social enough to reach out to people actively like that. So I ended up at Apple where I wasn't working on that. But then after, after Apple, I had um, I went through this period of, of traveling around and kind of coming up with these themes, but in the process of doing that, I had a, a team of scientists at um, at Georgia Tech and um, did some prototyping with them. And the structures that I came up with and the enthusiasm that they had for them made me think, kind of go back to that. Hey, I really want to make a, a tool for scientists. I want to make a new MATLAB or a cross between MATLAB and GarageBand. Mm-hmm. And so that was um, I'm. I've never admitted this publicly before, but that was kind of my my major project for like the next year or two. After that, was I was making this um, this new scientific
0: tool. That's a beast. What made you put that aside?
2: It's sort of like that the earlier like fantasy company thing, where um, mm-hmm. it's hard to have the level of motivation to pull off something really huge like that if you if you don't kind of have the right support structures in place. That is the absolute truth. It's very very hard. I still, in the back of my head, I still think that's what it, I'm working on. I've, there's, mm-hmm. I've had to take certain detours, and I realized ultimately that this thing that I want to make, which I assumed would just be an app, and I, I made you know, a number of prototypes for that, which some of which have leaked out into other, um, other venues. But ultimately, for various reasons, I realized that that environment of a screen-based app was not the right thing to make. So
0: does this get us to dynamic land, to where you are now? Um,
2: eventually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, some of those prototypes kind of leaked out into these talks I gave, um, inventing on principle and stop drawing the fish and, um, drawing dynamic visualizations. Like all, all the stuff I was showing there were kind of prototypes for this, the scientific tool that I was making. And that was kind of uh, the more public era
0: of, of this story. This is where people came to, to know Brett, right? Like this, all of that was actually just sort of the side effects of your much larger obsession
2: in the same way can an artist does studies before drawing their
0: masterpiece i kind mm-hmm. of saw
2: it as the series of studies that
0: i was doing in order to build up this tool yeah but now we have to get the dynamic land which is or isn't or is it how does it connect to this
1: well is this the masterpiece
0: i mean is that does anyone ever really get this well
1: you're your own toughest skeptic that you get really far along and then you Realized that mm, I veered off six degrees. Let's start yeah. again.
2: It's less that this is the master masterpiece, and more like what I wanted to do couldn't actually be a painting. It had to be another medium. It had to be um, uh-huh. you know a sculpture or let's, something like that. So I had so I had to create this new medium in order to create the the thing the that thing. I wanted to create in it. Yeah, got it.
1: So, right, so this is a so yeah, let's yeah. dynamic land for the listeners.
0: Start with a house. Uh, an, it, it, take me from there
1: requirements remember when you used to buy games and they'd have yeah. requirements requirements
0: on the box? one house 486 dx
2: house so it's um it's not a house it's it's a <laughs> it's a land um it's it's the the second floor of a, a large building, and it's an environment that's intended to be kind of warm and cozy inviting and the the lighting is nice and there's people around that are doing fun things and there's a lot of stuff it's a little bit cluttered there's like lots of papers on the table and that kind of thing and there aren't very many screens there's not a whole lot of people like sitting down in front of their laptops most people are um, working with these pieces of paper and that they're computering like the, the paper and the physical materials that are um, computational materials and people are programming. They're, they're creating computational behavior for these materials.
0: What's on the paper?
2: Well, you can draw on a paper. I don't know. You can. There's often text printed on the paper and if, if there's text written on paper, then that is the program that the paper follows. So, so like an of, actual program
0: could be written like, you know, print, hello world. Uh-huh. Program. okay Yeah, that, that would be rendered
2: as um, wish you are labeled, hello world. And okay. then as soon as that is written in the paper, then the paper has the words hello world splayed across it. Of course, if you want to do that, the easier thing is to take a sharpie and just write the word hello world. And so that this is kind of a a way of thinking that people have to get used to, is that a lot of things that kind of seem miraculous on a computer screen, such as writing the word hello world, you can just do that with a pen and, and paper. And so the the parts that need to be programmatic are those that are dynamic, those that um, need to change over time or respond to other things that are going on.
0: So, so now we're back to knobs. I can, I have all sorts of knobs I can play with.
2: Um, yes, and you can make the knobs yourself. One of my favorite devices in dynamic land is a joystick that was made by one of our researchers, Paula Tay. And, um, so I grew up, again, as an electrical engineer, and so I've always thought of, like, if you want a joystick or some sort of handheld control, it's basically a box of electronics. Paula's joystick is Literally a lump of clay on top of a spring, mm-hmm. which is um, just kind of resting on a on a um, foam core piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And the way that the system works is it's pretty good at being able to notice dots. So a lump of clay looks like a blue dot, and um, it's on a spring, so you can move it left and right, and it always comes back to the center. And then you can have a program that says like, when that blue dot is left of center, then make make mario go left and when it's right of center make mario go right and so now you have a joystick but there's no electronics it's literally just you you crafted a joystick and all the the kind of you know electronics technology is up in the ceiling with the projectors and cameras that are providing the the sensing to notice where that dot is
0: so now am i if i'm moving mario around am i moving him is he being projected on the table do i have a screen going too? like what's what am i doing we had a game jam um, pretty early on in the, the
2: life of the lab. And David Hellman, who's an amazing artist, he drew a bunch of artwork of like, here's Mario and here's like the, the dragon. Here's like walls and doors and that kind of thing. And we have a wall where you can put up, basically um, attach little pieces of paper to to the wall, which say like, um, draw draw a floor of the game here, draw draw a door here, draw, um, Mario comes out here, and he can use the joystick to move Mario around and jump over things and, you know,
0: go through doors and that kind of thing. And then, I mean, the question I like to ask about any, anything like this is sort of, what superpower are you giving me? So there, there's
2: a few things there. One is that um, even if you are a programmer and most people aren't, the path to creating a useful working thing involves many, many lines of code, involves like, like lots of work inside a text editor and you have to reload a web page and all that. And so much of the code in modern computer systems is simulating a virtual world. It's simulating kind of a virtual physics of being able to drag things around and click on things and, um, trash
0: can and recycle bin and
2: yeah. yeah. And, and just even rendering that world of like, how do you draw a window? How do you you draw a menu bar? Like there has to be code to draw those things. Mm -hmm. But in the real world, the real world draws itself and the real world renders and simulates itself. And, so the amount of code that we have is actually much smaller than in a normal computer system because you have the real world doing... We don't need code for like moving objects around because you just pick it up with your hand and move it around. Mm-hmm. You only need a, a tiny amount of code that like draws whatever dynamic stuff you need on top of that piece of paper.
0: And then a few, there's a few people working on this, right? It's not just you. Oh, no. We're
2: um, fide Research Lab. We're six people. We're mm-hmm. a non-profit. So that, and it's dynamicland.org. Yeah, but um, we kind of forget the website even exists because um, the actual action is happening inside the place.
0: What's the best way for people to see this thing and understand it? Well, you have to visit. Okay. And a big part of what makes dynamic land
2: work as a computing environment is the social dynamics that happen when everything is visible and everything's out and, and we can grab anything and people can learn from each other because they're actually physically near each other and they can see what each other's doing. They can learn from the stuff that people have left around. You can change anything that's been left around. And you know, the, the secret sauce is there's the programming language slash operating system called RealTalk. It's designed for a very decoupled way of working, where you can one person can make a, th- a thing and someone else can make a thing, and someone else, a third, third person can make a thing that makes those two things work together. And so it's designed for people to constantly be riffing off each other and learning from each other and remixing everything that they see.
1: When will you sort of take a look at this world and say, it's complete? What is the criteria for completion,
0: so to speak? Is the world ever complete? I guess. Got heavy on me, Brett. See, this is a client service well, company. We don't get paid until stuff is done.
2: So, so Well, no, 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 <laughs> no. I think that's actually a really good question because um, it brings up the distinction between um, what we're doing and a product. So we're, we're a nonprofit. We're not making a product. We're
1: not. Yeah, you know, What we're making will never be in a box with a price tag on it. Um, Are you making something that someone can say, I would like to have this in my home in Missouri? A lot of people say that, and it'll be there eventually. Okay.
2: What we're doing is incubating a new me- medium, and that takes time. Sure. Um, and so one, one maybe analogy is the internet is not a product. The, the internet... Um, runs on an infrastructure of hardware and software products, you know, hundreds of them, but the internet itself was created in a nonprofit context and kind of had to be for what it was. Right. So are you building a set of standards here? Yeah. We're building a technology, but also a kind of culture. And that's the part that can't be rushed. Mm-hmm. So over the short term, um, growing very deliberately in that way. Over the medium term, in the same way that there's a public library and every kind of, built in every populated area, um, mm. you know, we kind of want to have a dynamic land that's accessible to anybody, no matter where they are, and probably, the public libraries themselves would probably just um, incorporate what we're doing. And then the long term, and so that maybe, maybe that's 20 or 30 years out, then the longer term, 40, 50 years out, is that it's built into all infrastructure the way that electric light is today. So today you walk into a building and you just assume there's electric lights in the ceiling, and in the same way, this will just be kind of a computational electric light that's available everywhere. But it, it's going to take that amount of time to um, do
0: it right and do it safely. So, I mean, what's fascinating to me because of the world that we're in on a day-to-day basis, success here is not that Joe goes down to Best Buy and buys Dynamic Land Kit version 5. Right. It's that a culture of collaborative, humanistic technology use uh, is distributed throughout the world.
1: Well, it's integrated, right? Like it's, it's not a thing. It's part of the thing.
0: So obviously if a large corporate funders out there going, Hey, I'd like to be involved in the future of the technology substrate of culture for the next 30 to 50 years, they should send an email. Who else should send? Like, do you need people? Do you want people to learn about things? What, how, how do people help right now? So dynamic land is a community space.
2: It's intending to kind of, um, It's not just a research lab, but it's intended to actually eventually kind of have the presence of a respected public institution like a public library or museum. Um, But we're growing it as a community space, a a place where people come to kind of do their thing with these powerful tools. And so the process of growing a community is, it can be fraught if you kind of go with the default of. We're going to tweet about this thing, and then a bunch of people on Twitter are going to see it, and they want to be involved. They're, you know, they're wonderful people, but you end up with a very homogenous community. And so right. we're located in Oakland, um, Oakland, California, which is um, or was recently named the most diverse city in America of, of its size you know, with you know, a certain set of diversity metrics. But that was deliberate. We have access to a community, which it can be a pretty wide cross-section of, of people. And we want to create a medium that works for all people, mm-hmm. and so um, growing our community, we've been pretty deliberate about trying to reach out to groups of people who wouldn't who, who aren't on Twitter and um, who aren't traditionally advantaged by
0: technology. So to close this out, tell us the most surprising thing that's been done with Dynamic Land. I think maybe the most
2: surprising thing, just to me personally, is that it actually exists, that there is a place that um, this, this to me, crazy vision of creating a computing platform in the form of a physical place, a community space, is actually taking shape. Before any of this, I thought of computing um, kind of in the both the Xerox Park sense or the Apple sense of you make a product, you make a, a box with electronics that somebody sits down on and like the, the screen is their world. And there was... This vision of like, no, we're actually going to create a community space, a physical space, but the, that the building is going to be the computer and the computer is going to be the building and people are going to walk in and create computational materials it's going to be lying around and people are going to work together and learn from each other. And that was such a weird thing to imagine that to actually walk into dynamic land and see it actually happening is um, is just kind of mind blowing.
0: Brett Victor, thank you for coming on our podcast. Thanks, Paul.
1: When a podcast closes with mind-blowing...
0: I can't do any better than
1: that. We're okay. We did good.
0: Everyone, if you need us, hello at postlight.com. Let us know. Take, go take a look at DynamicLand.org. Start, start to think about this. You've got 30 years. Take your time. You've got a minute. That's, that's not something you ever hear about technology. Most technology is like, you need to understand it now. Now. Q3. Q three. Launch no. it in Q three. Think about how a physical substrate for all computation could change your life as you become different things over the decades. That's what you can do here.
1: And this is he's not aiming for CES twenty nineteen. No.
0: No. He's he's aiming for Kid Goes to the Public Library 2065. <laughs> right. That's great.